it's if at all humanly possible, you know, build in a give back factor. On our project in Colorado, we've got a couple of charities that we're talking to now and, and we're probably going to support them as just part of our business model. You know, entrepreneurs, very wealthy people. I mean, you look at what the Gates Foundation has done and on and on. I mean, they can do a lot more, a lot quicker than the government ever can do. And, and so can you and I and every entrepreneur on a much, you know, on a micro level compared to the Gates Foundation, right? But we all add up. If you get a thousand entrepreneurs who do X dollars a year to a charity of their choice, and there's no red tape. I'm Rebecca White, and my guest on today's episode of The In Factor is real estate developer, founder, and CEO of Fuse Family Ventures, serial entrepreneur, Miles Sherman. Miles began his entrepreneurial journey at the age of 24 with $5,000 and a pickup truck. Since then, he has assisted in founding the Houston Entrepreneurial Organization, is the founder and a board member of the Bank of Houston and Keystone Bank, and has amassed hundreds of construction and development projects over the last 40 years. Miles is currently looking forward to his newest and biggest endeavor, a ski-in, ski-out development located in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, called the Astrid. Let's get started on our conversation with master entrepreneur, Miles Sherman. Miles, welcome to the In Factor. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here on the show to talk about your journey. Um, th this show, you know, a lot of people that listen to this are aspiring entrepreneurs or practicing entrepreneurs, and you've got a great story. Uh, it looks like a lifetime of entrepreneurship. And mm. so I'm excited to dig into that. I think I read that you started your entrepreneurial journey at a young age with uh about $5,000 and a pickup truck. So you are correct. Yeah. 23. <laughs> it, it didn't 20. seem young at the time, but it's Rebecca. It seems like a long time ago now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. We, we, we just had a conversation about that, that we've been doing this for a while. So can you take us back a little bit to the early days and tell us a little bit about how, you know, uh, I'm interested in, you know, where this entrepreneurial mindset came from and, kind of what got you started and what was that first business that you started? Uh, well, it's, um, I don't know from, you know, some kids grow up knowing they want to be a lawyer, a doctor, a fireman in the armed services, you know, all incredible professions. I just always knew I wanted to be self-employed. I always knew I wanted to be an owner, um, the boss. I had no idea what that meant, you know, just like when you're eight years old and you say, I want to be a fireman, you probably have no idea what that really means, right? But it's just this calling you have and kind of an, an internal innate calling. So I kind of always had that feeling that I wanted to be my own boss, um, ride the roller coaster ride. Um, and um, so, yeah, I, I, you know, got out of college and, and um, I always worked. I mean, I, Rebecca, I've filed a tax return every year since I was 13. I always worked. I had the after-school work program where you got out at lunch. And so 
So, gosh, by the time I was in middle school, I was working 15 to 20 hours a week after school. In high school, I was probably working 30 to 40 hours a week. And um, went to work for a construction company after college, and that was in 1983 in Texas, Houston, Texas. They got in some financial trouble. Uh, 1985 to 1990 was probably the worst recession Texas has seen since the Great Depression. Oil went to under $10 a barrel, and it was it was it was tough for a lot of people. And um, so my company that I worked for was going out of business and offered to transfer. It was kind of funny because I started out as, as a low man on the totem pole at 22 years old. And 15 months later, because they kept firing people that made twice or three times my salary. So they give me a promotion and title, but no more money. And um, I worked for a home builder. And I was, by the end, I think I was running three subdivisions at 23 and had did not have the skill set for it. But I was the lowest paid guy. So <laughs> I was alive. But they end up shutting down, uh, and I went to the bank, and I borrowed $5,000 with the help of my, my my dear father, who's since deceased, and he co-signed on the loan. I think I could qualify for two or three grand. He had to co-sign for the rest and start a construction company, and I basically put magnetic signs on the side of my truck and got some business cards printed, and, you know, this was before cell phones, computers, everything, you know, and just went out and started selling construction jobs. Yeah. So tell, so tell me that. So uh, t why construction? What took you down that path? Yeah, great question. So, you know, and in, in, in before that, I'd worked in a lot of different careers. I, I, I went to my father, who was smart uh, and such a loving uh, inspiration for me. I went to him when I was about to graduate from high school. I said, you know, I don't know if I'm ready for this college thing. And he said, I, I got a great idea. And I said, what's that? And he, he knew people in the old business, was in the old business. And he said, I'm going to get you a job on an oil rig on a uh, in East Texas. And so I did that for a year. And I came to him and said, I think I'm going to try this college thing for a while. <laughs> that, that seems like it's going to be more fun and a whole lot less work. Uh, so he was wise because he didn't tell me, you know, you're an idiot for not going to college. He said, oh, here's an alternative. Let's try this. And, yeah, you know, roughneck and you worked sometimes uh, 84 hours a week uh, if somebody didn't show up a couple of days. It, it was it, it was it was a lot of work. And so I, I went to college and then kind of in the summers during college worked for a construction company that a friend of mine's father owned. And then after uh, college, I worked for a home builder. And so I kind of knew the business, you know, and I knew I didn't want to go back to roughnecking or start a whole business and didn't. I mean, if you think about the construction business, even today, um, it, it, they're dinosaurs. You know, they're still building houses with two by fours, two by sixes, bricks stuck. I mean, it's and the, you drive by any construction site and there's tons of waste. but you know, it's been the same low barrier to entry. You, you don't have to have a lot of money. You just get out there and do it. I mean, it's been the same way for a long time. There's a few companies, Connect Homes is doing concrete panelized homes, and there's some companies like that. But it's it was what I could afford to get into is the short answer, right? Uh, yeah. And, and for $5,000, I could 
you know, make my truck payment and, and, and really fund a job. You know, I'd come to your house and sell you a paint job on the outside of your house. And I started out very, very low end, low tech. Um, and it's what I could afford to do because it didn't cost a lot of money to get into the business, you know, back in 1983. Um, so that's how I started there. Yeah. So you started with, um, with doing home, home, home construction projects. Like somebody might need tile in a bathroom or painting or anything. I'd put yeah. a front door on, I mean, you know, roof, I mean, anything because I did not grow up with money. Uh, I had student debt from school. I had, uh, my, my 22, my first year out of school, I bought two condos, one I rented, one I lived in. I had a truck. I had all these payments due. I mean, I would do anything. Uh, I was hungry. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and it was good. It was good that I was hungry. It was good. Yeah. A good motivator. Said it, yeah. If I'd had a trust fund, I would have been dead by 30. It would, it would not have worked that well for me. Now, I have to ask you a question because I'm not from Texas. What, what, mm -hmm. where does the term roughnecking come from? <laughs> so, you know, Roughnecks, it's probably maybe not politically correct anymore, but roughneck is a term when you when you work on an oil rig as a as a hand on the floor and you work 12 hour shifts, seven days a week, unless someone doesn't show up. And then you work a 36 hour shift and don't sleep for for, for a day and a half. And it's just it's very physical, dangerous. It's it's rough. And so. um kind of like redneck but roughneck you know you're yeah. you're a tough guy if you're you're working out there and working you know minimum 84 hours a week yeah uh, but they yeah. pay you well uh and it was great um and it was great experience and it you know a lot of my entrepreneurial journey or some of my entrepreneurial journey i've been taught what i don't want to do and after that experience i knew i didn't want to do that for any long period of time um so yeah. Yep. And well, that's, uh, you know, and I think there's a, I think there were a lot of lessons probably you learned, uh, and, and sometimes it is learning what you want to do, but sometimes it's learning what you don't want to do. So absolutely. I th yeah. I think that was a brilliant, uh, brilliant choice on your dad's part. And uh, it was like a, a great parenting move. <laughs> yeah, sounds yeah. like a, a wise move. So, uh, so how long, tell us about the trajectory of your career. I know you've done a lot of other things, including, um, you know, helping start some banks and you've got some projects going on now, but uh, bring us a little bit up to speed. Um, how long did you, you know, work in home, home uh, repairs and, and projects. Yeah. So, so, you know, it was very, look, being successful is half luck and half skill, right? I mean, you, 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 you need to have blessings along the way. And I've been very fortunate in that respect. There were a hundred times I could have gone broke, especially in those early years, Texas. And so I started my first company in October of 1984 and I've been self-employed uh, ever since then. I started out with home repairs because that's, you know, people weren't doing new construction. They were remodeling and, and people couldn't afford to sell their house and buy a bigger house. They'd add on another bedroom because they were expanding their family. Right. Um, but within a couple of years, the market turned a little bit and we started doing, you know, building houses, doing new construction. But after about eight or nine years in the construction business, and, and we did a little bit of commercial work, Rebecca, but 
90% of what we did was high-end residential because that's what I liked. My creative juices really got flowing when I would take a beautiful house that you lived in and make it better, you know, or mm-hmm. take an old, ugly house in a great location and, and make it uh, really beautiful. I mean, I, I love that, still do. Um, or take a raw piece of dirt and create something, right? But I realized in that space of the construction industry, which was, again, high-end residential, I couldn't, I could not duplicate myself, right? Uh, I knew, and, and, and by that, I mean, when the stuff hit the fan, which it always does, if you've ever built or remodeled yourself, you know, the stuff always hits the fan, right? Oh, yeah. You know, people don't show up, the material got delayed, whatever, you know. But when the stuff hit the fan, they always wanted the owner. They wanted me to come out on the job site. So I, I could never get away from that. So in a sense, I was in a retail business, you know, and I didn't want to be in retail because I, I wanted to create wealth. And I believe the only way for me to create wealth was to duplicate myself. So the next step in that in this entrepreneurial journey was I went into land development uh, with my father-in-law, who who uh, had 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 gotten killed in the in the 80s in the downturn, and he had one property left he was about to get from the Resolution Trust Corporation. I don't know if you remember them, but it was a government agency that during the 80s. They were tasked with distributing and selling off all the bad real estate assets that, you know, the banks owned, the banks that got in trouble, got foreclosed on, got sold off. And so he was in a lawsuit with the Resolution Trust Corporation, and we ended up getting that property. He and I created a land development company. We were 50-50 partners. Uh, I only wanted to be a 50-50 partner. I matched up dollar for dollar on everything. And that was kind of a self-respect thing for me, but I also wanted him to treat me like a partner because he was 30 years my senior, right? Um, he had more knowledge than I did. He, he, he taught me a lot about the land development business, of course, but I wanted to be on as equal footing as possible. So we started a, a land development company um, in 2000, uh, sorry, in 1993. Um, and turns out, that was the last resolution trust corporation property in the entire country. And after that, they shut the RTC down, um, which we found out at the very end of the uh, negotiation, <laughs> which helped us. Um, and so we went into the land development business and then just bought more properties. Timing was perfect. Again, that's the 50% luck. Texas was starting to turn around. All of our properties were in Texas, in and around the Houston metropolitan area. And so uh, we started selling to local and national home builders. Um, and then um, in 2001, he and I split up. We had, I guess, in uh, eight or nine years, we had built up and we had 25 separate real estate companies. Uh, again, we, we were, our timing was perfect, you know, and, and Houston was booming and, and, and so we split up in 2001, went different directions. I kept doing land development. Um, and then um, 2000 and 2008, I was, I think, in Kuala Lumpur, someplace halfway across the world. Uh, I was volunteering for a group called the Entrepreneurs Organization. I was on their global board. And I had this dream. And no, sorry, it's 2006. In 2006, I had this dream that the real estate market crashed. And 
Rebecca, in 2006, the market was just killing in Texas. Uh, it looked like there was no end in sight for the good times, right? Um, I had 55 million in personal guarantees on all these loans for all these deals. I was, uh, again, split up with my father-in-law at the time, so I had my own company, so it was all on me. None of my employees had any personal guarantees because they didn't have to, and they were employees. And, and um, you know, that was the path they chose. And so 2006, I had this dream uh, halfway across the world, and I woke up literally in a cold sweat because, uh, you know, I went broke and the banks were calling on my notes, and it was just this worst nightmare kind of a situation. And I went to breakfast before our board meeting that day, and a dear friend of mine, Ashley Pulselwaite, who is the current global chairman, She's like, you look terrible. And I said, I feel terrible. What happened? I told her about my dream. And I'll never forget this. She reached across the table and put her hands on mine. And she says, she said to me, Miles, there are certain things that women do better than men. I said, what's that, Ashley? And she said, we listen to our intuition. We listen to our gut. So she said, I just want you to take that with you. And I thought about it and I came home and I started to sell everything because uh, my goal was to get off of the 55 million in, in personal guarantees because it would have taken me down. And the progression was, you know, in the first three months, I sold a piece of property and made a ton of money. And then I sold, you know, property, made a ton of money. And then I made really good money and then I made good money. And so the last deal, uh, which was in May of 2008, I went to closing with a quarter million dollars uh, uh, check in my pocket to get off of $11 million worth of personal guarantee. It was my very last of the 55 million. And I remember driving to Galveston, Texas, and I thought, I'm either the smartest guy in the world or I'm the stupidest guy in the world. Because on paper, there was you know five or $6 million of profit in this deal. But I made that commitment two years before. And that's one of the things I'm pretty good about is when I make a commitment, you know, and I've made that decision. I'm, that's what that's the direction I'm going. You know, I'm not going backwards. And so went, closed the deal, kind of drove off with a little tear running down my cheek, <laughs> drove back home, back to my office. And uh, September 2008, the world crashed. Yeah. Lehman Brothers, Merrill Lynch, everybody went down. Uh, that property and many of the other properties I sold suffered greatly. Um, and so I was out of the land of home business. I still had assets. I had cash in the bank to do deals. I had everything paid for. So I was sitting in a good position for that crash. Um, so that was that part of the journey. Wow. Wow. That is quite a story. Yeah. Uh, crazy. And, and amazing to the, the, uh, you know, and, and, uh, you mentioned EO and your friendships there and the, the advice you got from your friend to trust your gut, or at least, um, the subtle advice to trust your yeah. gut. Uh, she yeah. let you make that decision, but, um, you know, uh, Wow, that's pretty amazing. So uh, there's a lot to dig into there. You know, I sort of want to ask you what your gut's telling you about now because <laughs> Yeah. You know, there's a lot of uh there's a lot of uncertainty as well, but uh maybe we'll save that for for a few minutes. Um you mentioned EO and I think probably a lot of our audience might not know about EO. 
Um, I've had some experience with EO, so I'm familiar with it, but I think it might be interesting to just mention uh, this organization, Entrepreneurs Organization, and the, how it works and yeah. why it's worked for you or how it's worked for you. That's a, that's a great segue into something that's been monumentally critical in my success in business and also my personal life. Uh, EO is the Entrepreneurs Organization. Um, they're a worldwide organization that was started, gosh, in the mid eighties, um, started in Canada then then migrated to the U S and now, and I know I'll get the facts wrong, Rebecca, but I think we're in 75 or 80 countries and 15 to 18,000 members globally. And basically it's exactly what it says. It's an organization for entrepreneurs. You cannot be the, the, the president of Exxon or, or you know, you, you can't be a president of a company as an employee and be a member of, of EO. Um, you have to be a, an owner. You have to be a founder. You have to have lived the experience that you and I have lived to be a member of EO. And so I got invited to the inaugural meeting in Houston, Texas. I think that was uh, 1990, 1991, something like that. And um, man, I've been a member ever since. It, it's been an incredible journey. Um, you have to be again a, 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 an entrepreneur, but you also have to have a certain amount of revenue. Um, but we also have programs that we created when I was on the global board to help you get to that level of revenue, so you can so you can be an entrepreneur. We have incubator programs, right? And so I've done some mentoring there. I love talking to entrepreneurs. I love mentoring entrepreneurs. You know, my my wife, my kids, everybody in my immediate family is, you know, my son-in-law owns restaurants in Guatemala. I mean, we are all entrepreneurs. That's who we are. It's just our DNA. And and I think part of that is, you know, when you grow up talking about deals at your kitchen table with your kids and treating them as an equal, what's your opinion on that real estate deal? Should I buy it, sell it? What should I do? And scratch their head and you know uh you you can foster entrepreneurism but if if that's not your calling you shouldn't do it it's like having kids like if you don't want to have kids don't have kids it's a lifetime commitment you know yep if if, if you can't handle riding a bucking bull for eight seconds don't get out of the chute because <laughs> because <laughs> that's been the entrepreneur's journey for for us you know you will have failures, you know, uh, you will have successes. Um, it's, it can be crazy, but, but EO is a great organization, not just from a business standpoint, but I have friends all over the world. I have friends that, you know, I'm invested in a good friend of mine, Bill Trimble's a couple of his companies in Canada. Um, I met him through EO. He was very instrumental in, in, in bringing EO to where it is today. But EO has also events for for families, for couples, for you know, bettering your relationship with your significant other. I mean, it's not just business; it's everything, you know. So it's been an, an incredible part of my journey. I'm very devoted to it. You know, uh, and and you were fortunate, I think, to have family members that actually uh, talk the talk and walk the walk the talk, and were interested yeah. in what you were doing, but. Uh, being an entrepreneur can be lonely at times, right? I mean, you got to make tough decisions. Yeah. And 
Um, so EO provides you with, with usually a small, even a small group of people that you can turn to. Um, you know, I mean, it's a big, big organization, but you join a smaller group that can give you an opportunity to, to get feedback from people that, um, you know, that don't have maybe a vested interest in your company, but care about you. And, and 100%. And that's so part of what, you know, you have local social events where you have dinner and a speaker, things like that, or day events. You have global events. Where there's the next global event is in November in Sydney, Australia. Um, those are, you know, four or five day events. Um, you have, you know, upgraded level of speakers and, and you do once in a lifetime uh, things at night. You know, you we, we had a private party on Ellis Island uh, one time with a private fireworks show. And we just done, I could just go on and on about some of the amazing things that I've experienced through the entrepreneurs organization that I would not have had access to on my own. But to your point, Rebecca, you break down in small groups called forum. Um, and those are usually eight to 12. Um, and that's where you become intimate. And I've got uh, myself and um, a couple of dear friends, uh, David Fleischman and Russell Vale. We've been in the same forum since day one of EO. So 32, 33 years, and we're still together. You know, we, we all join, we are 29, 30, 31, and we still meet about eight times a year. And there's other members. I mean, our youngest member in our forum has been there know, 24 years. So you, we know everything about each other. You know, they know everything about me and my life and my wife and my kids. And you really share intimately and everything that's said in forum stays in forum. So being an entrepreneur can be a lonely journey. Um, and that helps a lot with it because my parents thought I was insane when I said, I'm going to start my own company with no money in the bank, with lots of debt on some real estate and a truck. And, and will you co-sign the loan, please? So, <laughs> but they helped. You know, my father was very, very helpful to me all through my life. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it. So, well, so what a, you know, lots of great stuff in there. And, and so when you started getting out of the land development business, mm -hmm. um, what happened then? Because you, you've been at this, uh, for that was, we got, we got still like almost 20 years or at least 15, <laughs> yeah. year, 15 years to account for. How do you, how do you yeah. get to today? So, so the best thing I learned and I learned through, a speaker, um, Papa John, who started Pizza Hut with his brother and then did Papa John's. He came and spoke at an EO event in Houston. And he talked about when he was in college and his brother said, hey, sell your Camaro. That's where he has that Camaro in the commercials because that was a Camaro he sold to start Pizza Hut and then he bought it back. Um, he, was a, he gave a great speech and he talked about when they sold Pizza Hut and he thought he was the smartest guy in the room. And he went out and invested in 100 deals that he didn't know anything about and he got his head knocked off, uh, lost a lot of money. So then he said, this is, this is painful. This is horrible. <laughs> so he said, what do I know? I know the pizza business. So he started Papa John's. And he said, he looked in that group and he said, when you guys exit your company, if you do, take a breath. As entrepreneurs, we all just want to go right back into the next hot thing, you know, just go, go, go. 
you know, that's that's a personality trait of, of most entrepreneurs. Sure. And so uh, that was a few years before I sold out of the land development business. And 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 so I took that to heart. So, um, you know, sold everything and doesn't sell everything in Houston. I was still on the Bank of Houston board and had some real estate here and but moved to Austin because my father was at the end of his life and he was getting elderly and had, was having some health problems. So I thought I can live anywhere, you know, so moved up there and then um, sold bank of Houston, then invested another bank deal. And then a few years ago, four and a half years ago, we started Keystone bank in Austin. And so I'm invested in a liquor company up there and just, you know, I'm just, I'm always doing deals. I mean, right now today, I think I'm an owner in 23 or 24 different entities. Some I sit on the board on, some I'm the managing partner. I'm very active. More than half, I'm, I'm passive. You know, I just get quarterly statements um, and, uh, and, and just follow, follow their path, their journey. Um, and have two companies under contract right now, a warehouse and another business, a millwork business uh, for a big project. But I'm always doing deals. So I moved to Austin. I took a breath. You know, maybe missed out on some opportunities, but 2009, a buddy, a friend of mine bought me, brought to me a home plan business. So an online house plan business. Uh, The United States went from a million six new home starts in 2006 or seven to 400,000 and changed new home starts in 2008 or nine. I like buying assets when everyone else is running the other direction, right? That's when that one of my core values in investing is you make your money in the buy, whether it's a Ferrari, a house, a piece of raw dirt, uh, a business, right? So we bought that business, bought two other businesses, uh, did very well in that company. I just sold my interest to my partner um, and he, he brought it to me and, like a week before closing, he said, man, I don't have the cash for it. And I said, I will loan you your half of the cash and you, I want you to be 50-50 partners. He brought me the deal. He was a dear friend. I knew he would work hard. He'd probably work harder by me helping him out than otherwise. And he was, and he did. Um, and it was the right thing to do. I mean, it's it's great to make money. It's it's more wonderful to change people's lives. Yeah. Um, so, so. Uh, and then invested in other deals and bought and sold a bunch of real estate in Austin, Texas, where we lived at the time. Um, and, um, you know, bought a bought a house in Colorado, which we'll talk about in a second, because that led to the deal I'm doing, the biggest deal I'm doing now. Um, so just continue to invest in deals, you know, yeah. and, and had some misses. I mean, I've, a couple of years ago, I had a terrible beating. Uh and uh, it it really stings. I hate losing. I, I don't. <laughs> no one likes to lose, but when you lose a lot of money and investors lose money, it's terrible. Yeah. You know, and I. Yeah. It wasn't a company I started. It was a company that somebody else started, and I tried to come in and save it. And what I learned in that valuable lesson was, some companies are not savable. Some deals are not savable. Right. Uh, I would. I would. Been married to an amazing woman for thirty eight years. So it doesn't apply to me, but I, I, I think some people would say some marriages are not savable. They're just not. Um, 
that was a hard lesson because up until that point, I thought I can, I can fix it. You know, I can make it work. Uh, and you know, entrepreneurs have to have a false reality in a sense. We have to believe we can kill the dragon with a butter knife, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and you have to go in, you know, the ignorance. I remember a banker friend of mine telling me when I was in my 20s and started my construction, then I bought a kitchen and bath company to help me with my construction business so we could, you know, double down and grow and be more profitable. And he, he looked at me and he was twice my age. He goes, you know, I just remember being that ignorant and, and it's wonderful because you don't know that you're supposed to fail. And I really <laughs> took offense to that. He was a mentor of mine and I said, Campbell, that's uh, really, really hurts my feelings. You're calling me stupid. He goes, I'm not calling you stupid. I'm calling you ignorant. He goes, you believe you're going to succeed no matter what. And I go, and I said, I am. He goes, yes, you just made my point. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we have to believe that. Right. So when we fail, it's like, what the hell happened? How, how could this happen? But it happens to all of us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it, there's a uh, it, part of it is optimism, I think, you know, absolutely. Not, yeah. uh, you know, I think it can be dangerous to be overly optimistic and we've all been there. Uh, yeah. So we're not really talking about rose-colored glasses, but if you don't have some positive uh, perspective on the future or belief about the future, let's put it that way, you'd never yeah. move forward. So you need that, and and uh, sometimes that's why businesses succeed, right? Because the, yeah. the 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 person who's starting it and and building it just doesn't give up. They figure out how to execute past failure. And I love that. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to use that execute, figure out how to execute past failure. That's, that's wonderful. Yeah. And it's, and it's true. Um, and, and when you fail, just get it over with, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's hard. It's hard not to relive it a year or two years. Five. I mean, I, I remember things from 30 years ago. Why didn't I do this? Why did I do that? And my wife, Terrell is always saying, stop it. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> Look at all the success, right? Yeah. But, yeah, but that's also the drive, you know, that yeah. that 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 takes us to the next next deal and the next deal. And 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 honestly, after you've been doing it, this is my fourth decade of being self-employed. You are smarter. You, I mean, I wish I had the wisdom at sixty-two, at you know thirty-two or forty-two, you know. But yeah. you can't. That's not how life works. Yeah. 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 So let me ask you, you know, a lot of the listeners are, I'm sure, wondering, you know, what's your secret to finding the right deal? And you've already admitted that sometimes they're not the right deal. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think you've already sort of indicated that you, you follow your gut uh, and your instincts, which I love. I think that's really an important lesson. But what do you look for in a deal? If somebody's out there and they're they're saying, man, I'd love to find somebody like Miles to invest in what I'm doing. Wonder if I have the right stuff. What do you look for? It's a really good question. Um, and passion is number one. If you bring a deal to me, I, I want you to believe you can kill the dragon with a butter knife. I mean, I really do. Uh, there's a reality component. All right, you know, the dragon's breathing fire and you got a little butter knife. So, so let me let's help you out. Let's armor you here, you know. Um, but I I I I want to see passion. Um, 
second link from from the founder, from the entrepreneur or entrepreneurs. Um, and and then you've got to say, okay, you know, Rebecca has the passion. Now, where's the reality? Okay, is there a need in the market for your product? Right? Are you are you inventing another paperclip? Because you know, paperclip's been done. You know, or are you inventing uh, an electric, you know, backpack flying machine that can fly us to work? You know. Uh, like the Jetsons, we were supposed to be here 20 years ago, at least. <laughs> so, right. so, so, uh, you know, um, there's, it's got to serve a need in the marketplace. Um, right. It's an interesting time in the capital markets right now, because a year or so ago, everyone was throwing money at everything, you know, now investors want to see, First, you know, they want well, they want to get you to break even as quickly as profitable, and then, of course, profitability. So I've always kind of been that way. I always, you know, I guess the third component is I want to see a business plan that within a year to three years, you're going to get to at least break even, right? Knowing that there will be uh, huge chasms between here and there. There'll be, you know, earthquakes, volcanoes erupting. There's like all this stuff happens on, on the entrepreneurial journey, you know, death, dismemberment, divorce, like everything. And so, and so I want to, you know, the fourth component is I want to know that you've got tenacity, like tenacity equals greatness. Uh, you're, you're going to hang in there. You know, I'm invested in a, in a female company uh, called Hani and they sell razors and bombs and all this stuff. And, Great product, my wife and daughter and daughter-in-law. I mean, they all love it. But those ladies are tenacious, you know, and 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 I want the founders to, you know, I guess another tenet is I want the founders to have as much skin as they can possibly put in the game. You know, if that's only ten thousand dollars and their net worth is twelve thousand, hey, hold a couple of grand back because you know you might have an emergency. But I want you to be in, you know. Um, so those are some of my core values in investing. Um, I'm sure there's others, but I haven't, I didn't, I didn't prep for this call. So that's, that's what I got off the tip of my tongue. (laughs) (laughs) I I think it's great. You know, a lot of what I'm hearing is, you know, it's the, it's the mix of the entrepreneur and the, the market and market timing really, you know, does the market want this? Are you providing value? Uh, is the timing right? Because you and I, I mean, your your great story about your dream, timing yeah. can be everything in the deal <laughs> and yeah. in, in entrepreneurship. So um, I think it's there. I think it's about that passion and timing and market. and Yeah, and, 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 and not being afraid to go in the door that everyone is exiting, you know, and I've made more money in downturns than I have in boom economies. Not that we get the best return during the recession, but you purchase the asset during the recession. And then two years, five years, seven years later, it's worth 10, 30, 100 X, right? I mean, that's, you set the foundation. And so, so you being an entrepreneur, you have to be bold, you know, you, otherwise you don't take this journey, you know, it's not for you. And, yep. and everybody's got a, you know, now that my kids are grown, I, I just said, look, you, everyone deserves to be happy, right? You deserve to be happy. 
but I can't tell you what makes you happy. You have to figure that part out. And I told all my kids, be self-employed, go work for the Peace Corps, go, you be you, you know, that is, that is a common theme around our family is you be you, whoever that is, you know, and I'll support that. Um, but you got to figure it out, you know, um, just like you and I did. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, speaking, you know, right now we've got a lot of uncertainty. Uh, A lot of kind of crazy things have been going on in our in our world the last several years with with the pandemic. Lots of uh, lots of political things going on. uh, You know, inflation. Lots of challenges. And you are in the midst of the biggest deal of your career, mm-hmm. you told me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think we have to spend a little time talking about that. And I think it's aligned with your philosophy. So it's the Astrid. I think and I ask you yep. uh before we before we started this recording, I asked you about that name, which I thought was was uh unusual, different, but it's a ski in, ski out development in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. So tell us about Astrid. Uh, where did the name come from? And What's that all about? It sounds like a pretty amazing project. Yeah, thank you uh, for asking. It's, you know, again, my 40th year in this entrepreneurial journey, which makes me sound really old. Uh, <laughs> and, and and this is the largest project of my life. This is going to be a 300 million plus project. Um, we, my wife and uh, kids were avid skiers, snowboarders. That was the one family vacation that we took every year without fail as a family. And it's, and it's a, it, it was just our thing, you know, and we always went to ski country nine years ago, we bought a house and steamboat. Um, and, you know, again, part of it's gut feeling on finding deals, you know, you just know it's right. Uh, and part of it is, is the math, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm big on always doing the math. Two plus two must always equal four. It can never equal anything other. And so Altera, the mountain company in Steamboat, is spending an unprecedented amount in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. It's always been kind of underspent by the previous three owners. They had some recessions in there and, you know, the companies that owned our mountain had problems. To put that in perspective, they're they're finishing up a $220 million spend on this one mountain. And there's really two large mountain companies. There's been a big uh, roll-up strategy between uh, Vail Mountain Resorts and Altera Mountain Company. And to put that in perspective, Vail are the other mountain company. They're spending $174 or $175 million on every single mountain they own, which is 20-something mountains. Wow. Altera is spending $220 million on one mountain, our mountain. So that was pretty easy for me to figure out, okay, um, you know, if I have a boat in the water, it's going to rise up because they're creating the tide, you know, they're, 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 they're the ocean and they're, they're, they're making it happen, spending this kind of money. They are a smart company. They are not going to spend this kind of money and break even. They want to make a return on their investment. I'm just a little part of that. So we started looking around. Um, there were three parcels left uh, that are true ski and ski out parcels on the mountain. Uh, we bought the largest remaining piece of land 
And then we bought an out track. So we have 4.14 acres on the side of the mountain. Um, and we're doing this uh, very exclusive, uh, very luxurious condominium project. We'll probably have 60 to 68 residences. Um, again, very high end. We're, we're doing things that have never been done in our market. Uh, for example, we're going to have um, a rooftop, about 8,000 square feet on the rooftop, exterior square feet, about 1,800 square feet inside of a rooftop experience where for a pre-skier, watching fireworks on 4th of July or just, you know, watching your kids ski and we'll have hot tubs out there. We'll have fire pits. We'll have s'mores and, you know, have a blow up screen with, you know, movie theaters and, you know, all, all kinds of stuff up there. And of course, a bar TVs for sporting events. I could go on and on about it, but that's just one of the things that makes us different. No one has done that in our market. Um, it's, it's going to be the nicest thing that's that anyone's ever built in this market. Um, so far, we've had incredible excitement, opportunity. We've got a ton of people who want to be, want to buy a residence there, uh, who want to invest, who want to, you know, bring their families there for for many years to come. Um, we're trying to do a lot of special things to make it an incredible experience. You know, everybody loves the winter in ski country, right? But if you're like me and you have a home in Texas, you really love Colorado in the summer because, you know, right now where it's 103 degrees here in Houston, it's probably 72 degrees in Colorado. So I'm usually there this time of year, as we discussed before the call, I'm here for some some other reasons uh, that couldn't be helped, but I'm, I'm going to get there pretty soon because it's, it's amazing. You know, you, you don't need air conditioning. You just open up your windows at night and it's, yeah. You know, it, it's, it's, it's steamboat is a very, very special little place. Um, because unlike most of the ski mountains in Colorado that are along the I-70 corridor, uh, either, you know, cause Denver is the largest city by far in the entire state, right? So that's your hub and everybody goes to the closest ski mountain. We're pretty far away from steamboat. It's, it's twice the distance from, Vale or Aspen, a lot of the mountains that are that are just closer to Denver. So for us, it's great because we're isolated, um, and it's a very large mountain uh, to ski on. Um, you know, it's going to be the second largest skiable mountain in Colorado uh, as of opening day this season because they're opening up, you know, new acreage. Um, so, you know, we found this opportunity. We moved on it quickly. Uh, we've been working on it now 16 months. Our goal is to get through the city with our permitting process and break ground fourth quarter this year. We'll be signing earnest money contracts. I mean, the day after the city uh, approves our preliminary plat, we're going to be signing earnest money contracts. And we have a bunch of people who are waiting in the wings um, to do that. You asked about the name. Um, so, the Astrid is Norse mythology for divinely beautiful, a beautiful goddess, you know, strong goddess. And so I have a, an amazing wife of 38 years and my daughter and my daughter-in-law and now granddaughters. Who, I mean, I love the feminine power. You know, I love 
I love females, you know, and I, I, it's kind of a nod to the ladies that mean the most to me in my life, you know? So, uh, and on top of that, from a marketing standpoint, it's five letters long and it's hard to misspell. So that's <laughs> always good. <laughs> and not that, not that hard to pronounce. So, nope, uh, nope, yeah. Yeah. nope, not hard to pronounce. Yeah. So it's I good. Think- We're excited about it. We'll see what happens. It's, it's several of my friends think I'm insane to be doing this at this stage of my career, but I love it. It's, it's exciting. I'm passionate about it. You know, a guy yesterday that I talked to for the first time on a zoom call, a real estate agent at Sotheby's, uh, Pam Venata brought him to me. He said, you know what I'm most excited about this project? And I said, what? He goes, your passion, right? And, and, and I love it. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to screw something up. Right. But my goal is to not have a big mistake, you know? Right. Right. Mistakes you can, that's just called a learning curve, you know? Yeah. yeah. So that's... anyway, it's, uh, we're excited about it. You should come up and visit. Yeah. Especially, I'm, I'm, I'm especially like right now, right? I was going to say right now. June, July, because it's, it's warm here in Tampa too. Oh. Not quite as hot as Texas, but, um, it's, it, you know, I think one of the things that's tough is the unrelenting heat. So it's really nice to, to get away from it, you know, and, uh, and, yeah. uh, to do some, to, you know, experience yeah. the cool, cooler mountains. So, uh, well, congratulations, first of all. It sounds really exciting. And I love that, uh, you know, we talked about being over 60. I mean, I love that you're still doing the deal, still passionate mm-hmm. about it, still entrepreneurially minded, um, still recognizing that, you know, there are going to be failures along the way. Sure. And, uh, and um, you know, what a, what a great uh, lesson for for aspiring entrepreneurs and people who listen to this podcast and, and want to, you know, pursue their own entrepreneurial dreams. You know, I could, I could talk all day because you've got so much experience and I'm so, you know, I've learned a lot and I've really enjoyed this, but I I know you've got, you've got things to do and, and, and deals to plan. And uh, so, Yes, yeah, so always something to do. But I always end my podcast by asking my guests if they had one piece of advice for aspiring entrepreneurs or students uh, of entrepreneurship, uh, what would that be? Maybe it's something you wish you had known uh, when you started, or maybe it's something that you've learned that, along the way. That's a great question. I mean, there's no, there, there's, I wish there were one piece of the secret sauce I could give to everyone because I love mentoring. I love helping entrepreneurs. Um, I'm passionate about it, right? Um, I guess I'll stick with passion. I I mean, if you're not passionate about what you're doing, it's, you, you might even make a lot of money, you know, but you won't be fulfilled, right? And so I think you have to be passionate about being self-employed first and foremost, because it's, it's a tough journey. It's not easy. It's not for the faint of heart at all. Um, but you have to be passionate about what you're doing, you know, uh, and sometimes that's not enough. So you will get your head knocked off. Just start over, you know, um, the other thing I would say is if at all humanly possible, you know, build in a give back factor, 
on our project in Colorado. We've got a couple of charities that we're talking to now, and, and we're probably going to support them as just part of our business model. You know, entrepreneurs, very wealthy people. I mean, you look at what the Gates Foundation has done and on and on. I mean, they can do a lot more, a lot quicker than the government ever can do. And, and so can you and I and every entrepreneur on a much, you know, on a micro level compared to the Gates Foundation, right? But we all add up. If you get a thousand entrepreneurs who do X dollars a year to a charity of their choice, and there's no red tape, the government is always handcuffed. And we won't even get into the government being handcuffed because that's that's like a, a, a day long podcast. That's a whole nother conversation, right? <laughs> yeah, but but yeah, bake in a, a give back factor um, and 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 you'll feel good, right? Yeah, yeah, and and life is meant to be enjoyed if you can, right? So do something you love. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Miles, this has been fantastic. I've loved the conversation and and just honored to meet you and to have you on the podcast. And if any of our guests wanted to find out more about you or what you do, is there somewhere they could look uh, or connect with you? Sure. If you, I mean, you can go to the astra.com. We've got the beginnings of our website there because we can't sell. It's, you know, it's, it's our first step. Um, I, uh, that's probably a good place to start. And then if you leave a message, I'll find it there. So yeah, that's probably the best place or, um, I'm pretty easy to find. I'm kind of out there. So. <laughs> You've done a lot of deals, so that it, it shows up. Well, Miles, Done thank you again for joining me. It was it was thank a you great so conversation. Much. It's yeah. been excellent. Yep. Have a great day. You too. All right. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more about entrepreneurship, we would love it if you hit that subscribe button. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of InFactor.